0: Restoring voting rights and another lawmaker spends money inappropriately. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of February 18th. I'm Joel Ebert.
1: And I'm Natalie Allison. This week on the podcast, we have two guests. We have with us Senator Ramesh Ackberry, she is the chair of the Senate Democratic Caucus. And we have with us Representative Michael Curcio. He is the chair of the the House Judiciary Committee. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you
0: for having us. Well, um, we wanted to kick it off by, you know, obviously there's been a new push, it seems, or a renewed push uh, for criminal justice reform. There's been a lot of conversation early on in this session. Uh, You've got Governor Bill Lee talking about it throughout the campaign. Uh, You've got groups like the ACLU and uh, Americans for Prosperity suddenly joining forces, which is not an everyday occurrence at the legislature. Um, Tell us, you know, in your estimation, why is this all happening now?
3: Well, I think it's really part of a national trend that's been developing for some time, um, either one from a fiscal perspective or from a philosophical perspective, or a little bit of both. Uh, But if you look at Tennessee's state budget, last year we crossed the billion dollar threshold. Um, And I really do think that there are more creative ways to make sure that we uh, are strong on crime but also being smart on crime where we're not uh, putting someone in a box that they can never get out of and never get their life back on track or help rebuild their community and then also save the state a little bit of money.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. We want to make sure that we don't give an inch on public safety but at the same time get much smarter on crime. What we've seen across the country is that um, you know, this concept of just lock you up and throw you away the key doesn't really – do anybody any good. It doesn't do the offender any good. It doesn't do the victim a whole lot of good, uh, in, in many cases. And it certainly doesn't do society at large, uh, a lot of good. And so instead, if we could, if we could get smarter about how we approach this, then we've seen in places like Texas and in Georgia and, and other States across the country that have, have instituted Reforms and oftentimes reforms come at a much um, lower cost than building more prison beds. Uh, So, as as um, my good friend Senator Ackberry said, you know it it does it does come with a cost savings. But you know, for example, uh, in Texas they underwent about a two hundred and fifty million dollar criminal justice reform package as opposed to a two billion dollar prison construction plan. And uh, what they've seen in ten years is they've now closed eight adult prisons. Uh, could probably close more uh, in the future, but the 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 percentage of violent criminals that are incarcerated has actually gone up a little bit, and so they've done a really good job of of um, separating who they're afraid of and and uh, who's actually a uh, rather who's a danger uh, you know who we're afraid of versus who we're mad at.
1: It seems like in this day and time there there isn't a ton of issues that both Republicans and Democrats can get behind and champion. This is obviously one of them. Um, I mean, would would you say? Representative Curcio that this is something Republicans previously have not cared about and suddenly they do. Do you think this is always something that has been a priority? I know that, you know, Republicans have gotten pushback for some of the reforms they made in the 80s or so that some would argue now have had an adverse effect on our criminal justice system. Why is this now something that the GOP cares about?
2: Well, and don't forget the tough on crime initiatives, while we all, there's enough blame to go around for everybody, came under the Clinton administration and those were, those were pushes then. But, but again, I mean, to take partisanship out of it, I think Republicans have always uh, wanted to support liberty initiatives. uh, And, and, uh, and so I, I don't see this as, Really, a partisan issue. I think it's it's a blind spot that we had in both parties and as a country for a long time, because again, it was it was where we were really mad at a lot of folks, and so we wanted to come down as hard as we possibly could as a society. Um, But it does take courage to be able to go back to your constituents and say, "Look, I'm mad too." But the best thing we can do for this person once we've punished them is also to make sure that they can re-enter society because what we know is that 95 percent of these folks are coming out. And so who they are going to be when they live next door to me or that I'm walking down the aisle in the grocery store and they're there with me in my community has as much to do with their desire to get better. Uh, as it does with the programming and the access and the ability that we give them to get better. So uh, you could have all the desire in the world, but if you're sitting in a you know little cell with with no access to programming and no ability to make your life better, then it, you're going to be hard pressed to actually make that happen.
1: Do you think there are many people in your party or even your constituents who are still having a hard time with that idea of of focusing on the rights of felons? And obviously that's unto a bigger goal. But do you think some people are still hung up on some of those? those qualms i
2: tell you i have been pleasantly surprised so i have a i have a prison in my district the Tourney center industrial complex and in only tennessee uh and then I'm, i have made it sort of my business since the the first day i was elected to go and, and spend a lot of time in that facility and kind of learn more about um the the anti-recidivism measures and the programming that they have there by the way there's more programming in the attorney center than than some states have in their entire um uh, uh Correctional system. Period, uh, and so it's unique. And, and And what I took from that is that I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to you know study the data that, that, that came out of it. And so I have spent you know m- many town halls, many Rotary Club meetings, you know these civic groups that we all go in, and meet with, talking about these issues. And every time I've been pleasantly surprised, the number who have come up and said, "You're right. This is an issue that needs to be looked at." Uh, and so while I think. I think the conventional wisdom is you might want to tread lightly here and be and be sort of uh, cautious about what your constituents might think. The, the actual reality has been they've been very, very supportive from both sides of the aisle. And, you know, we're, we always joke about how, you know, how often does the ACLU and, and groups like the Beacon Center, Americans for Prosperity come together? The answer is not that often. But when they do.
0: You better pay attention.
2: Well, yeah, and look at the landmark changes that can be made. And so if we can just extrapolate that across the rest of the issues across the state, then then, um, <laughs> then we, we might really uh, be able to be able to make some waves. So. Senator
1: Ackberry, do you have any critique of how Democrats have handled criminal justice reform? Do you think that <clears throat> you guys have been pretty consistent over the years and now people are just now catching on and supporting?
3: Or do you think Democrats could have handled it differently? Uh, no, I definitely do not think we've been consistent. I think that uh, overall it's been an evolution in both parties, really in a part of the national discussion. Like Chairman Curcio said, a lot of these really tough on crime and really strong armed policies did come out of the Clinton administration. A lot of leading Democrats supported those type of policies, and I think it was more so a reaction to what was going on in our communities and the true decimation that we encountered. And then also I think not having a firm understanding of the benefits of reentry and how you can reduce recidivism. So I think it's been an evolution. Uh, If you look at the first real expungement laws that were passed in the state of Tennessee, uh, they actually happened after Democrats lost the majority. I mean, I know that we have been very supportive of them. And certainly myself and many folks in my party have been pushing for comprehensive expungement and reentry and um, restoration of voting rights. But I definitely think it has been a, a transition. Yeah.
0: I wanted to uh, move to a specific bill. You guys are both sponsoring your own version of a voting restoration rights uh, legislation. Can you kind of uh, suss out, explain the differences between there? I, I don't know if there are any, but, you know, uh, what's what's your bill do, uh, Senator versus uh, your bill? Yeah. Uh,
3: so, so my bill kind of creates a streamlined process through the Secretary of State's office. Uh, but uh, I think that Chairman Kersiel's bill incorporates that and more. So I, I am fully supporting that bill like my bill is just not necessary honestly (laughs) i can't agree with that like i've already i'm trying to sign on as a senate co-sponsor you don't hear
2: that every day (laughs) well we it's nice when we get to work together
3: there you go any means necessary we got to get it done
0: and so uh you know again for for those unfamiliar with it but give us the broad brushstroke as to you know how how large of a thing are we talking how many people uh
2: Yeah. So right now in Tennessee, um, we say to folks who have who have served out their sentences, completed their probation and parole, people who've paid their debt to society. In summary, we say to them with one arm behind our back and our fingers crossed, uh, you have your rights back. So so we on paper, we say you can vote. You are you are now a full fledged citizen. But the asterisk to that is you have your rights back as long as you can go through 12 state agencies and create this massive paper trail. Uh, and prove at every step of the way that you have done what the state has already said that you have done. Um, And so... You know, from a criminal justice reform perspective, from a reentry into society perspective, obviously that doesn't make any sense. And then if I can put my, you know, limited government conservative hat on, why did we create all of these burdens and unnecessary red tape in between something that we said, yes, you can have this right back and actually being able to get it back? So uh, what we've done is we've just we've just eliminated that those basically 12 state agencies, their role in this process to be able to say, once you've completed your t- sentence um And once you've completed your probation and parole, then we're going to create an automatic, not automatic registration, but an automatic notification that goes from TDOC to the Secretary of State's office and then to the uh, individual county election offices themselves. Because when someone shows back up having paid their debt to society, it shouldn't be any harder for them to register vote than it is for you or I to register to vote because we've told them. You're you're restored. The other piece of it, um, and I think we're talking about when we go a little bit further in my bill, uh, is we are the only state in the country that ties the repayment of things like child support to yeah. being able to have those rights restored. If you've been in prison for 15, 18, 20 years, I can guarantee you that you're going to be behind on some payments you still absolutely owe that money and the same financial ramifications apply, whether it be your credit report, uh, you know, any of those other things, all of that should should and does still apply. We just we're just going to decouple it from being able to get your voting rights. So, back. how many people do you expect to, that could be affected by this? I I do not have a number, Ramesh. You may
3: I, I don't, but I know that I think it's significant. It's yeah, I think I, it's three yeah, over it's 300,
2: about
1: 300 to four hundred thousand yeah. people. Um, that's some data from Think Tennessee. There, yes. they're a, a nonpartisan uh, think tank here, and I've also spoken with uh, Senator Steve Diggerson. He mm-hmm. is he's um, sponsoring it in the Senate. Your bill, yeah. uh, and he he had a similar estimate. Um, I think he said somewhere between three and 400,000, but you know, he also said, who knows, you know, how many people will actually, uh, make an effort to go through with this. All you, all you guys can do is streamline the process for them, but it remains to be seen how many people will take advantage of this and actually successfully, uh, restore their right to vote. Some data I've seen though showed that of the 320,000 people who are eligible, only, as of 2016, only about 11,000 of those people had successfully gone through the process in the state. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so so there are a lot of hurdles there.
0: Have either one of you talked to the Secretary of State's office about this? Uh, I I mean, when I was doing some research in, in Florida, I had just seen that one of the big headaches when they restored rights was that there wasn't like a database anywhere that showed them, OK, you've you've completed all of this information. So therefore, it creates a headache then for the secretary of state's office. Are they in charge of doing that? So what is what is our secretary of state say so far?
3: I haven't talked to him yet. So <laughs> I, Well, I, I, I have okay. for full
2: disclosure. And and <laughs> I want to be very careful that I start every conversation on this bill by saying the Secretary of State's office is doing a fantastic job. They are they are acting out the legislative hurdles that, that, or the the hurdles that we put in place by legislation. So, so don't misunderstand that they are, they're doing yeoman's work. And if you go to their website, they've got a chart that shows you exactly how to go through this process. We're just saying that we shouldn't have set it up to be so complicated. Do they have a
1: position though on on this concept or this bill?
2: In the conversations that I have had with our current secretary of state, um, he appears to be neutral on this bill. Uh, There are many of us, myself included, that would have a lot of heartburn with a bill that was automatic uh, or registration. Registration, rather, Uh, this bill clearly does not do that. We're not just automatically registering to people to vote as as they come out, that sort of thing. Uh, And so I think if if we had crossed some red lines like that, which, again, I have no desire to do, then we probably would have seen a different stance. But as far as just streamlining the process, they they seem to be neutral on that.
1: What about the governor's office? Uh,
2: They have uh, mentioned that they are in support of the bill. Uh, if I understand that correctly, and that this goes along with the larger, you know, criminal justice reform discussion that we're all having. And I think, um, and and we can talk more about that, but we want to make sure that that we're really taking a holistic approach to the entire system. I mean, everything from the juvenile process, which, which the Senator and I have talked about a lot when we served together on criminal justice in the house, all the way to, you know, post-release and and how do we help folks reenter society? I think it's, 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 it's gotta be a 360 degree piece.
0: You, you bring up a a point about juveniles, uh, Senator Ackbarry, you have a bill that would essentially, uh, take us through it. It would uh, restore, uh, parole eligibility for juveniles that were convicted, uh, and sentenced that's more than 30 years. So, uh,
3: yeah. yeah. So currently right now, if a juvenile is convicted of first degree murder is a mandatory, mandatory 51 year sentence. What this legislation seeks to do is reduce that down to 30 years. Um, if certain conditions are met, then they are allowed to apply to the parole board uh, to see if they're eligible at 20, then to apply for parole. Um, but the, the the bottom line is this: it's it's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life in prison or to the death penalty, and 51 years really is a de facto life sentence. There are. Uh, there's no evidence to support a juvenile being incarcerated and living that long. Uh, and we really, you know, when you're talking about someone who's 13 or 14, 12 years old committing a crime, uh, we want our process to work to re- restore them, to redeem them, and allow them to re enter society. And I think this will reduce it down to something that's a little more manageable. It will also remove um, the sentence of life without the possibility of parole, which is unconstitutional.
1: Clearly, Santoya Brown's case drew attention to what the law currently is for juvenile sentence to first degree murder, life in prison for that. Uh, were you already working on this before, you know, all of the attentions
3: started focusing on her case or is this something that's been in the works for a while you think people have been calling for this it's been in the works for a while um calling for it um different sponsors i think jeremy Faison really started with it um and then brenda gilmore kind of did some work on it and i took over a couple years ago Uh, but it's a whole coalition of folks from the davidson county um uh, juvenile court judge to some folks in the private and public sector that really are interested in this uh, legislation and I actually had a group of attorneys reach out to me last week uh, from a major law firm saying they wanted to help support as well because they've been working with some juveniles that are incarcerated. I do think though the centoyas situation magnified it and really kind of uh, kind of put the spotlight on Tennessee like hey 51 years really? Um, at the same time we are acknowledging that serious crimes are being committed okay uh, but prior to the 1996 law coming from direction from the Clinton administration, it was a 25-year sentence than parole eligibility.
0: Where are Republicans, if you can speak on their sure. behalf on this?
2: Well, I can speak very specifically because uh, when Senator Ackberry was in the House uh, last year and we both served on the Criminal Justice Committee, we were able to pass this exact bill out of the criminal justice sub and full uh, with my support and the support of many others on the committee, bipartisan. Uh, but, you know, for whatever reason, the bill had not yet um kind of had its it, it, its day finance. so to speak last year <laughs> yes um house finance or senate
3: uh house okay yeah yeah
2: and and that's just that's a function of if the it's end if, of if session yeah, yeah. If and it's, if out you're out not in the governor's budget yeah. then yeah. you run out of time yeah. Yeah. so yeah. so no we this is something that we've supported in the past i mean i think there are some some red lines or some guardrails that folks on the committee would not would not cross and I, I think i think um my colleague Ramesh did a did a great job of 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 keeping this bill inside those parameters. And, and as a result, again, we got a good bipartisan product. And so I hope to see, you know, some success this year.
3: Me too.
1: (laughs) You also Senator Ackberry have several expungement related bills. Always does.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell us what you're trying to do. Uh, If you think it's going to go anywhere this year, so we'll see. One about that, I, I've, I've learned never to predict the possibilities of a bill. Okay, we won't jinx it. <laughs> but um, basically, just expanding the amount of offenses that are eligible. Right now, we're looking at uh, low-level non-violent. We're still looking at low-level crimes, but some of them, um, low-level like violent misdemeanors. For instance, like if some a group of Young adults got into a fight and, you know, 30 years later, that is still on their record. So trying to get at some of those things and then also some, you know, um, I guess writing bad checks or like forging a check, but still looking at a misdemeanor offense. So it's not – and they cannot have reoffended really just I've encountered so many people in the community who 15 20 years later and they have this on their record and just trying to get at that so we'll see so
1: you said you know this is this is not the first year you've you've right. had this many bills why isn't this going anywhere are republicans not in favor of this type of thing well
3: actually in the in the house um two years last year, both of these bills passed, uh, they got all the way through, uh, committee and on the floor and passed on the floor in the Senate. It was a really tight vote and it lost by one vote. Um, and it was bipartisan because I know a couple of those bills, Mark Norris was a sponsor of one of them, Johnny Shaw was a sponsor of in the house. So
2: I would say a lot of times we, we have applied these expungement fees to this. And so this is something that may not want to dig too deep in the weeds on, but so when you, um, Sometimes there are fiscal issues that, that come along with, so we, we try to balance how many things can we make expungible? Can we can we keep the fees as low as possible so that more people can afford to do it? Does it should it be automatic? I mean, so that, I think there's a lot of moving parts around it. I think what we all agree on is that expungement is a good concept. And and actually, if you if you meet with folks like uh, uh, Julie Warren who testified in in our um, Judiciary Committee a few weeks ago from Right on Crime, uh, while Tennessee may be behind in some regards, we are leaders in in other uh, pieces of criminal justice reform, and one of those is expungement specifically. So other states are looking to Tennessee for how we have made so many things expungible and how we've reduced those fees in large part to Senator Ackberry's work when she was on the House Criminal Justice Committee. So I I think we are a leader on this.
0: Any other particular bills that you, uh, Representative Curcio, want to, you know, that you're particularly excited about this session?
2: Absolutely. One of the things that we're looking at, and this goes with the expungement piece, I think, because we use kind of the same chart uh, of, of offenses, but Um, For for low-level, first-time misdemeanants that are are guilty of expungible offenses, uh, we're looking at um, the potential of just a presumption that they're not a flight risk, and so they can be released on their own recognizance as opposed to having to go to jail, get booked, and then then call a bail bondsman, or if they can't afford to make bail, to sit into jail. What we know is that – my wife's a public school teacher. She teaches – K through five art uh, in Dixon County, and um, you know, just thinking about those, how many kids in our school systems? Um, how good is it for them to have a dad sitting in jail over a low-level misdemeanor offense, or a mom sitting in jail over a low-level misdemeanor offense? And so, uh, if somebody's a first-time um, misdemeanor, it and it's and it's an expungible offense anyway, what we're looking at is just a presumption that they can be released on their own recognizance, that they're not a flight risk. Now, the judge would have discretion to be able to say, well. I mean, you know, looking at these other factors and if you're defiant and so forth, then maybe you do need to go spend a night in county lockup. But uh, but to me, that it, it just it makes a lot of sense. A, our county jail uh our county jail system is always sitting, if you look at the county-by-county county reports, at near capacity. Uh, and and plus, it's just good public policy. If somebody's not a risk to society, to themselves or somebody else, then maybe they need to be home working as opposed to sitting in jail. Criminal monitoring has been able to help with that. So we've got you know bracelets now that can track not only GPS but also transdermal monitoring where they can – in real time, uh, test your, your, your blood alcohol content. If you're on, if you're on probation, you're not supposed to be drinking. Uh, if you smoke marijuana or use some other, you know, illegal substance while you're, while you're being monitored, they can tell that immediately and then can send out a beacon. They know exactly where you are They then can come get you. Um, but the cost of that is, you know, you're looking at, Rough numbers, you know, eight dollars a day as opposed to eighty dollars a day. So uh, again, if they're not a risk to themselves or or others, isn't it a better public policy position to have them out in the community working and and paying taxes and raising their own kids so the state doesn't have to?
1: And it seems like that is one of the the arguments I think that's most compelling maybe to conservatives who otherwise wouldn't be as interested in this is is that it does make financial sense. So that's an interesting part of the discussion. Yep. Uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you all about uh, the Tennesseean actually had a story about it this weekend. Um, about the increase in thefts from uh, gun thefts from vehicles since the legislature several years ago relaxed some of the gun storage laws, um, Anita Wadwani, our colleague, reported that law enforcement leaders and uh, some of the state's largest cities are saying that they think that that relaxation of gun storage laws has caused more problems in their cities and and, and caused an increase in stolen guns on the street being used. Um, by people including juveniles to commit crimes uh, the the House Majority Leader William Lambert, we spoke to him the other day about it. he said, no, I don't think there is any uh, connection there. I don't think there's a correlation. We don't need to to go after gun owners um, by increasing penalties for them for not locking their vehicles, etc. Uh, Senator, do you have any thoughts on on this?
3: I do. Yes. It's so debate I, here and, and where you land on it. I do. I'm actually carrying a bill on behalf of the Memphis Police Department because we've seen a significant increase in um, gun theft since the legislation allowing storage in, in guns and the extension of the castle doctrine from your house to your vehicle. So all we're asking is that, hey, look, just lock it up. You know, We're not restricting your ability to have a gun, use it, or anything else. Just be responsible. If you're not in the vehicle, if the vehicle is locked, lock the gun up as well. It's not putting any sort of criminal charge on the individual. It's just saying our legislation says if this gun is used in the commission of a crime and you didn't report it as stolen and you didn't have it locked up, uh, then you have to pay a fine. Uh, and the reason for that is we just want people to be responsible, and if if we don't have an enforcement mechanism, uh, then it's it's difficult. Uh, so I, it has bipartisan support with Mark White in the House. I did meet with Chairman Lambeth about it, though. So we're still working through okay. those, uh, or not, le- Chairman Leader Lambeth, and we're still working through those uh, those those options. So you have you have <laughs> at least one Republican on board with this concept, at least one. But what do you think?
2: <laughs> yeah. So. Um, y- Again, I think we all agree we don't want to punish law-abiding citizens for something that happened to them when they became victimized. But one thing we have looked at, and this to me was a little um, out of balance when I, when, I, when I looked at it, which is right now the theft of a gun is treated like any other property theft. So the punishment for that is a percentage of the value of the item. Uh, I can tell you that I have a handgun that is 25 years old, but it is, so it's not worth very much, but it is very lethal. And so, one thing we have looked at uh, in conjunction with um, a a number of groups looking at this issue is to increase what the actual penalty is for theft of a gun. Right now, it's a percentage of the value of the object. That seems a little out of whack to me. And so, what we're looking at is enhancing that, or or making not enhancing, but rather changing that penalty for the theft of a gun to make it much more meaningful. Well, Luther
1: Lambert, yeah, he has a bill that would make it a mandatory thirty-day sentence. Exactly. Uh, You personally, though, I mean, do you think that? the legislature should look at any kind of penalty or an increased fine for a gun owner who, who isn't locking his or her vehicle and I don't stolen.
2: I don't think it's the government's role to re victimize someone who's already been victimized.
0: Interesting discussion. I'm sure uh, it will be interesting to see this bill go through the legislature. That's about all we have time for today, but really appreciate you guys coming on and, and, you know, we'll check in throughout the session on on these various bills. So thank you again. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: who has taken on the campaign finance beat for us here at the USA Today Network, Tennessee's political team, uh, had a story this week about the latest lawmaker, this time it's a Democrat, who appears to be getting into some trouble for campaign finance spending.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Representative Harold Love, a Democrat of Nashville, essentially was audited by uh, state campaign finance officials. And in their most recent audit, they had found uh, that he had spent money inappropriately. They outline a number of uh, things that they say were wrong. Uh, He spent money on dry cleaning, uh, purchases at a jewelry store, uh, a couple of uh, uses of campaign money when he was on trips that were uh, in connection to his... Uh, position in his church that he's in, but Love defended it as a legitimate use of campaign funds that uh, ultimately led to the creation of legislation. Uh, finally, they also said that he spent $13,000 in food inappropriately. Uh, when I talked to Harold Love about all of this, he basically pushed back a little bit against the audit itself and said that uh, it's kind of an unwieldy process, um, but did admit some fault while also defending some of his purchases. Um, So what does it
1: mean for him? What's going to happen?
0: He can get fined. Um, uh, They could also just ultimately say, you know what? Uh, If he explains away what happened, uh, then they're not going to do anything. Uh, It's really tough to see which way the uh, campaign finance officials will go on this Uh, something to remember is Jeremy Durham the ex-lawmaker who broke campaign finance law more than 500 times was fined $465,000 for some similar uh, uses of campaign money as love. Um, I have also in my recent reporting found that lawmakers are continuing to spend money on very weird things like uh, a brand new car, uh, cigarettes Cigars uh, and a couple of uh, trips or hotels to France. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it would be unfair to say that this is a practice only limited to Harold Love, but uh, the audit itself only was of Harold Love because it's a mandatory uh, number of audits that they do each year. And now, finally, our usual notebook dump. First up, FedEx decided to move its facilities to downtown Memphis. Uh, On hand for the announcement was Governor Bill Lee, as well as several state lawmakers uh, and other dignitaries when that was made. Uh, 680 jobs were expected to be, uh, you know, added to downtown Memphis because of the move.
1: Governor Bill Lee says he is now open to talking about adding additional historical context to the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Confederate general, early Ku Klux Klan leader, that is on display in Tennessee state capitol. Previously, the governor uh, dismissed suggestions that the bus needed more context. He has uh, been firm in suggesting it should stay where it is. But last week, he said he was now open to talking about adding more context to it. The Tennessee attorney general has put out an opinion about whether transgender people are covered under the state's hate crime sentencing Enhancement statute, Uh, the attorney general ruled in favor of of transgender people uh, being covered under that statute. It isn't a hate crime charge per se, but when someone commits an offense such as an assault um, against someone and bias is determined to be a factor, transgender people, victims in those cases uh, now can see the, the defendant get an increased sentence.
0: And finally, former state senator May Beavers and former uh gubernatorial candidate uh is has been elected to a new position not in the state legislature but to the wilson county republican party uh recently i ran into may beavers while shopping at home depot she was not in that position how did that go uh, it was fine it was a very distant interaction but (laughs) uh (laughs) but now she will be chairman uh gop chairman of the wilson county republican party
1: congratulations may
0: as usual, you can check out our podcast every Tuesday, download it wherever you find uh, your podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, wherever that may be. Please continue to rate us. That really helps us a lot. Uh, I think we're depending on, uh, you know, your ratings to get us any raises. I don't know. Maybe uh, that got lost in translation somewhere. Out, guys. <laughs> um, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert.
1: And I'm Natalie Ellison.
0: We'll see you next week.